What's up, sports fans? My name is Lucas Weiss, host of the Weiss Sports Chronicles podcast. We got a fantastic episode for you today with Sarah Lanes. She's an MLB.com writer and reporter covering baseball. In this episode, I chat with Sarah about the historic hiring of Kimmine to the Miami Marlins, how this significant moment will lead to more women in executive positions, not just in baseball, but throughout sports. Then we turn and talk about Sarah's career, how she fell in love with baseball, and how she got to her current role as being one of baseball media's rising stars and one of the go-to voices for stats and research and historical context. She is a must-follow on Twitter if you are into baseball stats and facts. So, a really great episode with Sarah this week. The We Sports Chronicles podcast, of course, is available on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. So make sure to like, rate, watch, and subscribe to all three of those channels. Now let's get to today's episode with Sarah Langs on the We Sports Chronicles podcast. All right, as I said off the top, I am pleased to be joined by Sarah Langs. She's a journalist and a reporter for MLB.com. Sarah, thanks so much for coming on the We Sports Chronicles podcast. Of course, thank you so much for having me. Likewise, well, listen, it's my pleasure, and and we'll we'll dig into your career in, in just a bit. But obviously, it's been you know you know a historic couple of weeks for baseball with uh, Kim In being announced as the first uh, female general manager of a of a North American major professional sports team, and. I guess for you, Sarah, I mean, you know, you've spent, you know, a few years in this business. What was that moment for, for you as someone who's, you know, a woman in, in baseball media? Yeah, uh, it was very exciting. You know, <laughs> I, I got a lot of texts from friends and my mother and my father and so many different people. And I was texting people and, you know, everybody just wanted to talk about it. And uh, I've been following her career for a while um you know dating back to when she was an assistant gm and i think there were a lot of articles being written about how she might be and probably would be the first female gm but it was a question of when and she actually went to the university of chicago which is the same college i went to so when i got there and realized that connection uh, i felt a kinship you know I, i got to interview her once um but just you know knowing that there was a woman who had gone to school where i did which is certainly not uh, the world's biggest sports school, let's say we are division three. Uh, and to know that she had gone on to, at that point she was working for the Dodgers and then transitioned to the job in the commissioner's office. That was always very exciting for me. And I was always sort of bragging about her or <laughs> telling people, Hey, she's a maroon, you know? So, uh, that was very exciting, but you know, I, I got a lot of really kind messages and I feel like I saw just so much positivity on social media and, of course, there's always going to be detractors, but I really saw a lot fewer than I do with anything. And I'm pretty vocal um, when women get things that they absolutely deserve um, like this. So it was just really exciting to get to, you know, have another moment like this and to have this moment, which was really, really huge for baseball, for sports, for everybody and for her. I mean, mm-hmm. just to see someone work so hard and get there. No, absolutely, and and certainly well said, and, and and I think when you look at 2020, you know, such an unprecedented year, like, you know, I know a lot of people are starting to, you know, rank top 10 stories of the year, and like, for me, like, this is the clear number one, I mean, and, you know, obviously COVID-19, you know, you know, ha- has its way of, you know, affecting many of the stories, but like, this is just such a historic moment, and like, 
the MLB graphic of like the little girl watching on TV to see Kim In. Like that's so many girls now, you know, who who are you know growing up and can see like wow, like I can be an executive of a major professional sports team in North America. Like in you know ten years ago, that may not been possible. So it's just it, it was a real historic moment for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, that graphic was great. And I just felt like so much of the messaging with it was really great. And she's the second, you know, Asian American person to lead a team also with Farhan Zaidi, um, who's not technically currently a GM. So I feel like that note got a little mangled, but uh, the two of them are the two on that list. And, you know, that shouldn't be lost as well. It's a really big moment for a lot of different groups. Where do you think it goes from here, Sarah? I mean, I mean, you've been around, you know, the game for for a while now. I mean, obviously, it's you know historic. But how do we keep the conversation going, as well as you know, providing opportunity for for women in baseball? Yeah, I mean, I, and I think this is actually something that she said either in her introductory press or at some point. But you know, it's important that she's the first, but she's not the last. And mm. there's been so much coverage of her not necessarily in the last few years, but certainly like in the earlier part of the 2010s decade, um, as she was interviewing for a number of different GM jobs and we knew her name. And I think it's important that we've learned the names of the other people who, you know, maybe five years away right now, even on the normal path, they might be analysts right now or whatever level, um, but knowing more of the names of those people who are working their way through the front office system or baseball operation system who, who are women. And I, I said this to my friends a lot, but there've been a lot of stories about some of those women, but I, I look forward to a day when there isn't a story about mm. every single woman like that, because it's not a novelty or mm. a different thing or someone that we should be highlighting. It's just another employee. Those stories are great. Uh, but you know, the ideal is that we're not even having to focus on that necessarily. Uh, I certainly know of a couple of women who are, you know, within two to three years of working for teams. Uh, but even I don't necessarily know the names of people who are a little bit further uh, down that path. But, th- you know, that's what's next is just getting to know those people and continuing to, you know, support them. And now that it has been done, hopefully people are even more open to it. You know, a woman could have been a GM at any time. We mm-hmm. didn't need this to happen. Yeah. We just needed the first one to happen in some way. But this doesn't mean it wasn't possible until 2020. It just means that it didn't happen until now. So, you know, hopefully people are aware of that. And, you know, it's not another handful of years before the next one. And I doubt it will be because there are more women working in baseball operations and analytics and everywhere else within the game than there were when she first started, you know, in 1990 as an intern with the White Sox. Yeah, like it's certainly law and overdue, especially with her credentials. And I'm sure there's other women with, you know, similar credentials that could definitely be an executive of a team. And and it's not just baseball, Sarah. Like, I mean, it's happening right now in hockey, football, basketball, where you're definitely seeing women having more of these opportunities. And it's just important to keep those conversations going, but also, you know, providing those, you know, opportunities because it's, you know, important to have their their perspectives for sure. But I mean, yeah, but, absolutely. And I mean, there was an article in The Athletic uh, recently uh, talking about women who could be in the position to do this for the first time in the NHL, NFL, and NBA, uh, and highlighting some of the women who are in those roles and aren't necessarily in their first year of working for a team. So there are certainly people. We just need to give them those chances. 
shifting gears and, and, and talking about your career and, and, you know, anyone that follows you, you know, on Twitter knows, you know, big in the numbers, big in the history, big in the stats. And I'm just curious, I mean, where, I mean, was baseball always sort of like a dream for you to be a part of, you know, to cover one day down, down the road? Yeah. Um, I grew up a huge sports fan. Um, my parents were really big sports fans and, you know, my grandfather was, <laughs> and, uh, there's just a lot of history there. So we watched a lot of sports growing up and baseball was definitely my favorite. Uh, my parents have always told me, you know, when I was very young that I was saying, Oh, look at that curveball and you know, that kind of <laughs> stuff. So, uh, it definitely stood out to me. Uh, and I would say around sixth grade, I had uh, an English teacher who made a really big impact on me. And that was kind of the year that I really decided I wanted to write. And, you know, at some point he sort of said to me, you know, you can combine writing, which you're liking a lot and sports, you know, which you talk about all the time. And that was sort of when the idea of being some sort of sports journalist really got onto my radar. Um, and occurred to me as a possibility, not gender related whatsoever, but just mm -hmm. like, I didn't necessarily, I read those stories, but it wasn't like, oh, I could be one of those people. Um, and then it sort of clicked. So, uh, that's been on my radar for a while. So I sort of had that in mind as I was applying to college and doing different internships in college and just working my way through all of that. I was trying to, you know, work on those skills, however I could and, find a way to get into sports. Uh, and I started with ESPN. I did a lot of baseball there, but it wasn't specifically a baseball job. So I think the idea that I wanted to only work in baseball sort of occurred to me as I was there. I love other sports, but I wanted to be focusing only on baseball. So that's when I was able to make the transition to my current job. Well, it's, it, it's really fascinating. And, and look, I have, you know, a lot of sports media guests on the show and a lot of my listeners are young sports journalists and you know this whole concept of you know the grind and hustling for opportunities and when you look at yourself like working in the New York Daily News the Daily Beast Sportsnet New York CSN Chicago many other places before your current job right now at MLB it just shows like you know you have to gain those experiences and, and gaining the reps and the skills along the way to then be you know successful in the industry and I think you know you're, you're a perfect example of that where I mean those different jobs probably and, and I'll ask you I mean how did those certain jobs just, you know help you build those skills where you can you know be successful in, in your role right now yeah I mean so the you know the daily news thing that you referred to wasn't even sports it was a, a literary blog that they <laughs> hired me to write for um one summer and that was the journalism internship I was able to get that summer. So that was sort of, all right, I'll be working on writing. Um, it's not specifically sports, but at that moment, I'm honestly not sure that I was a hundred percent set on sports. I was pretty sure, um, but it was worth, you know, trying something else out. And I got experience doing interviews and just writing, writing on deadline, all of that kind of stuff. And from there, I sort of worked towards uh, my internship with Newsweek and the Daily Beast, where when there was a sports thing, I always volunteered, but that wasn't, you know, the norm. There were a lot of other things. And then from there, I was able to get my internship with Sportsnet New York, which was really my first like sports job. Um, and that summer, I was able to cover some games and do interviews and be in the press box and really see, first of all, confirm to myself, this was what I wanted to do and also get that important experience. And, you know, it's all about maintaining relationships and getting to know people. So I was able to, you know, some of the people who I worked with there have reached out to me, you know, even recently, hey, I like this article, I liked that, you know, it's definitely like a constantly growing 
uh, network of people. Obviously, Twitter helps, uh, mm. social media helps in that way. But, you know, I think that anyone who runs internships always likes to see someone, you know, go on to succeed and do those things. And they'll always reach out. And it's really nice to have a couple of people I worked with early on in my career before I was even out of college who I still hear from occasionally in that way. And, you know, that's the other important skill that you're working on as you work on the actual technical skills is just, you know, how do you stay in touch with people? How do you maintain all of that? Do you remember the very first game that you covered in a press box? Like, and, and what was that experience like for you? I do remember. I don't remember the details of the game, hmm. which is surprising to me. But I know that I interviewed uh, Vic Black, who was a reliever for the Mets at the time, hmm. uh, before the game, because he was every year for the Mets, there's a guy who takes the train to the game, and that's kind of his thing. Um a long time ago, there was a really great New York Times article about Heath Bell, which I remember, like, you know, uh, sitting down on the floor to, like, look at the entire newspaper at once and read that. And there have been a bunch of guys through the years, and I had noticed on social media that Vic Black was doing that, and no one had written the story yet, so I pitched my editors on that. And I remember I interviewed him before the game. I remember I talked to Terry Collins. I don't know why I was talking to Terry Collins for that story <laughs> in retrospect, but I remember doing that. Um, and I, I can't for the life of me remember who they were playing, but definitely that was a really big moment for me. And, uh, it's funny because, you know, last season I spent a lot of time in the city field press box, like <laughs> significantly more time than I'd ever spent in it probably combined, uh, beforehand, just based on my new role. And I can still remember like walking up to that door for the first time and not being sure if it was going to open or not, whether it was locked, whether I needed something like with a barcode. Um, and now I just, you know, walk in and find a seat. So it's, uh, it's really funny to like be aware of that progression too. Yeah. Like I think for, for any young journalists when they're, you know, when they're going to the press box for the first time, when they're doing their first interview, their first scrum, like, I mean, we're, we're sports fans at heart. And like, you know, you, you may get a little starry eyed when you see like, a favorite player of yours growing up. I know like for me, you know, you know, seeing Tiger Woods or, or you know, uh, in a press conference was like really cool for me, given that I, you know, grew up watching golf or whatnot or Patrick Mahomes for football. So like those things are so unique because it's like, wow, like this is happening. But I feel like as time goes on, you certainly lose that starry eyed a bit. Like did, did, did that happen for you in, in your, in your career where, you still love the job, but it's not like the start where it's, you know, these, these athletes are like heroes almost. Yeah. I mean, I think I knew from the beginning when I was doing any sort of sports journalism work, including internships, that that's when, you know, fandom ends. Um, and that's <laughs> when you aren't approaching it in that way anymore. So I I'm not sure I really necessarily felt that, you know, it was more, uh, for me, the starry-eyed thing was, hey, this has been my dream, and I'm actually standing here. Mm -hmm. um, so it was much more about the job itself, and uh, that's actually something that I really try not to lose at all. I mm -hmm. mean, in my previous job for uh, working as a researcher on Baseball Tonight at ESPN, I would get to go on the road. I went to the World Series a couple times. I got to go to a bunch of Sunday Night Baseball games, and I would always go up to one of the stage managers uh, for the show when we were all set up, but before the show happened and say, Hey, can you take my dorky picture for me? And I have a picture of myself standing on the field at every ballpark where I uh, research baseball tonight. And that's really important to me because, you know, I like to see that. I like to have that, you know, again, like visual progression and not let myself get too used to it uh, mm -hmm. because it's really 
you know, it's still amazing to me every day that I get to do these things and I don't want to lose sight of that. But that's not so much about, you know, sports fandom, but more about, you know, just being proud of and happy to be in the place I'm in with my job. You mentioned being a researcher for ESPN Baseball Tonight. What are the sort of skills that that are needed to to be a successful researcher in that position? Yeah, I mean, the most important thing with research is accuracy, and the Mm -hmm. second most important thing is speed. Um, (laughs) So knowing how to correctly find the answer and how to do that quickly. Um, People think that researchers need to know every single thing off the top of their head. That's helpful. It's certainly helpful when I get, you know, when I were to be asked a question and I can answer it with 100% certainty off the top of my head. But equally important is just being able to find it immediately, not go to the wrong website, not open the wrong database, but go to the exact right place at the right time. Um, And you have to be good at working under pressure because researchers are building graphics for shows and not everything is all neatly done in advance. Things happen uh, things happen in the moment. Things happen during during the show. I've been standing on the field at numerous ballparks while a no-hit bid was in the seventh inning before, and it wasn't at our ballpark, so we're going to have to react to this potential, you know, Kyle Freeland no-hitter. I remember a no-hit bid he had, I think, in 2017. Um, anyway, uh, and I was standing there like, what is my graphic for this? So you need to have that creativity, and you need to be able to respond quickly and under pressure. And you need a bit of a thick skin because if something does go wrong, you know, it probably is your fault if you screw up, but you need to be able to go past that. You know, Um, I think of it like athletes, you know, needing to have a short memory. doesn't matter if you struck out four times last night or football, you know, dropped a bunch of passes, whatever it might be. You still need to come and be the best version of yourself the next day. So, you know, even if something were to, you know, go awry, you need to be able to bounce back from that. Someone asks you a question, you didn't get back. To them in time it didn't you know they didn't get to it before they came back from the commercial break whatever it is just be ready for the next one so uh i mean those i guess that's a bunch of different skills mm-hmm. but accuracy is the absolute most important that's for sure well it's similar to actually like writing articles right i mean you know journalists and writing a piece you have to check your facts you got to check your your numbers and certainly baseball journalists love you know using statistics but do you think anyone can be a researcher, though? I mean, because, you know, people can say, well, I love to use numbers. I love this. I love to, you know, include statistics. But I feel like, like you just mentioned, it takes a real diverse skill set and a real unique skill set to be a successful researcher. Yeah, I mean, the researcher role that I'm talking to you about is obviously a very specific one. It's working as a content researcher at ESPN. And I know that regional sports networks have researchers slash graphics people who sort of do both um, and that that role can vary. I think that ESPN researchers are definitely a very specific role that I don't think exists in that way in many other places. Uh, I do think anyone, you know, anyone who has, you know, that inquisitive nature and can learn how to use a handful of different websites certainly can, but, you know, a lot of it I think does come down to temperament in terms of how successful you are and just whether you're able to work under pressure, recognize that the clock is ticking and, you know, adjust accordingly. Uh, But to the broader question of researching, I mean, I think that in a lot of ways, um, certainly in baseball, it feels like a lot of people endeavor to research in some way or another more these days. You know, anyone can subscribe to Baseball Reference and their baseball savant is completely open. Um, 
and there are a lot of different sites that are accessible. So, you know, I think in baseball, sometimes research, I guess it depends exactly how we're defining it because, you know, people point out trends and do different things all the time where technically maybe that's not the most obvious thing. So maybe that is the beginnings of research. Uh, but I do think that specific researcher role when you're working on television shows just it's very specific. <laughs> so, and and to build off of that, so I mean, you know, when you're covering, let's say, last year's playoffs, and and you're do, you know tweeting a bunch of different stats or history and things like that, like, do you do that research in advance? Like, do you have like a big spreadsheet? Like, what sort without revealing all the state secrets? Like, what sort of your like method or approach when you're, let's say, doing a World Series and and you're tweeting a lot of you know really helpful stats and context. For, for viewers watching the game? Yeah, I would say very, you know, there's certainly no big spreadsheet with everything <laughs> prepared. And uh, you can't really, I mean, I guess there are certain things you could plan ahead for um, if this happens, if that happens. Uh, but it's really all just in the moment. You know, it, it depends on what's the story of the night um, and you need to be adaptable, what, what happened here, and just sort of reacting to that. I mean, I don't think, you know, sometimes, certainly during the postseason, maybe the morning of a game that could be a clincher I might look into or tweet out, you know, if the Braves win this game, this would be their first postseason series win since 2001. That was something that happened this year. Um, so I guess there's sort of preparation there, but it's certainly not like, oh, let me have this list of things and then they're ready. Um, hmm. And I, I'm sure that if you were to try to do that, like, you know, 25% of them would come true. Like, we just never know what's going to happen, obviously. Um and that's what makes it so much fun. You know, something happens and I guess that kind of goes back to another skill is required is like, you need a really good, I, I don't know if it's like, it's not just memory, but I think just like awareness of everything going on. Mm -hmm. um, I watched every single game this year, like every single one, which was the first time that I think I watched every single game wow. in the baseball season. And I just felt so much more, I mean, it was a shorter season, yeah. but um, I just felt so much more attuned to everything where even if it were a player on the Pirates that maybe not everybody's talking about, I remember he did this yesterday or two days ago and, you know, not every note exists in a vacuum. Sometimes it has to do with the streak or doing something twice in a few different games or whatever else it might be. Uh, so, you know, just sort of having that ongoing Rolodex um, in your brain of, hey, here are things that have happened that if they happen again or something related happens uh, is notable too. So, so that's too good not to follow up. So how many games in total then did you watch this season? Um, so every team played 60 games except for the Tigers and the Cardinals who played 58. So, but obviously you have to divide that all in half. So whatever, however many games yeah, there were that, season. And then well, that's a lot. I, I don't know how many it is. I know the number for if it's 162 mm -hmm. um, off the top of my head, but obviously this was a shorter season. So uh, however many games there were, I, I watched. And, 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 and do you do you then like make notes for each game? Like, and then just sort of keep the, like, like you said, like a Rolodex, like do you sort of keep like each note and just maybe rely back on that for a particular tweet or a particular story? Um, no, it's more like if I find a note, then I tweet it, you know, okay. interesting. and you know, half the stuff that I find is not interesting and I move on. Um, that's something that someone who trained me in my first researcher job really, uh, you know, impressed upon me is that like, not everything you think to look into is going to be notable. It might've happened last week. It might've, you know, happened for someone on that team last year. It's not interesting. Um, so not everything is a good note. <laughs> 
Um, and I guess that's another skill is sort of assessing what is and what isn't. Um, but yeah, if I find it and it's interesting, I tweet it out. If there's someone, if our beat writer, like if I think it's worth them knowing it, you know, it could be part of their angle to their story, I let them know. And then, you know, we, we go from there. If it's a story, a larger story I want to pitch for myself that's more research-based, then, you know, I go that route. So just to elaborate then, what then, like in terms of what you find interesting, is it just mainly like what you think is is going to get a lot of, you know, reaction on social media? Is it more just interesting in the context of baseball sense? Like how do you determine then which notes are then interesting? Yeah, I would say 0% is about what's interesting on social media. <laughs> yeah, fair. Um, my initial, uh, you know, job with this was much more about providing it to other people I work with, you know, when I was mm. at ESPN. So you're not looking for reaction there. You're just looking for something that would be good. You know, I, in my mind, it's sort of, you know, if I give this to an anchor and they're reading this on air, is it embarrassing in some way? Is mm. it obvious? Is it silly? Or is it interesting? Um, mm. I think that, you know, that kind of runs the gamut. And I would say that anyone who tweets out research notes or shares them in some way probably has different things in mind. Like whenever something happens and hadn't happened in a while or a player rejoins a team, Charlie Morton re-signing with the, signing with the Braves after he debuted for them in 2008, for instance, like I always want to see the lineup that day. And I don't know what the engagement is on the lineup tweets. Like people love it when, you know, Vlad Guerrero Sr., was in the lineup against him in his major league debut hmm. and there were a ton of names there people liked that but i've probably done some of those where it got like five likes you know hmm. um but it was interesting to me so it's always is it interesting to me and am i intrigued by it and if that's the case then i share it with the world <laughs> no and like I, I like because i you know it's for sure and like i think too i would like to believe that there is a community like on social media or baseball twitter that like actually is interested in that because i find that a lot of baseball twitter accounts like you know it's it's often commentary of the game which is fine but like i find the researchy type tweets just add a lot more context to what i'm watching as a consumer of the game which just makes the whole viewing experience i think a lot more better yeah i mean context is the entire point you know um sometimes i see things anywhere uh that I personally think lack context. Um, <laughs> that's something that I always try not to do. Uh, I, I don't think that that really helps. I mean, a number might be cool and just a big number, um, but if we don't know why that matters, then I personally don't really care. Um, and I think that, you know, making sure that you're giving a fair assessment, um, a fair minimum, whatever else it is, is really important um, just to not mislead people. Like mm -hmm. it could be true, but Eh, sort of. That's not really the point here. You cut off one guy by raising that minimum a little bit higher. The sample size was actually only 10 players, like, you know, anything like that. Um, so I'm very cognizant of those things and definitely notice them just and try to avoid being misleading in those ways. So you transition from ESPN to, to MLB.com. What does your role then entail now and, and just how it, how it, has it evolved since you since you arrived at MLB.com? Yeah, um, so I'm a reporter and a researcher. Um, so last year uh, in 2019, 
I covered a handful of games filling in for beat reporters, either when they didn't travel and it was the visitor or when our New York writers, Brian Hoke for the Yankees and Anthony DiComo for the Mets, you know, had vacation or anything else like that. That was obviously a very good experience. You know, writing game stories is a different type of time pressure, as you sort of alluded to earlier. And that's really important just, you know, overall in terms of a skill set. And the other thing I get to do is just write sort of like research-based stories for our site that don't necessarily require game coverage as part of them. But just one that comes to mind was Joey Gallo, I want to say like last spring, I was approaching 100 career home runs and he, I did some research and it turned out he was going to be the first player in major league history to hit 100 home runs before reaching 100 singles, which is very, you know, three true outcomes, Joey Gallo, very reflective of the player that we've seen him to be so far in his career. So I'm not in Texas and I think he actually hit his 100th career home run in Pittsburgh. They were playing the Pirates. I don't know why I remember that. And I wasn't there, you know, I wasn't necessarily talking to him or anything, but you know, in the days leading up to it, like when he was at 97 home runs, I pitched that to my editor and wrote that. And then when he hit the 100th home run, I was able to update that, have that ready. And, you know, that was an additional piece to cover the fact that he'd hit his 100th home run. In addition to the game story, where obviously he had the quotes about, you know, a good accomplishment and whatever else, just kind of adding an additional angle. So always looking for storylines like that, which is great because I can write about any team and I don't necessarily need to be there. I don't necessarily need them to come through New York. It's great if they do. And I can talk to someone directly and get a little bit additional background there. But regardless, can certainly, you know, not everything, a lot of things deserve more coverage than just a tweet. So being able to sort of map out everything and build an argument or explain exactly what's going on. So when you're writing those research type stories, how do you humanize the stats? Because I'm certainly a fan of analytics, but I know statistics, but I know that there's a lot of baseball readers that get this glaze over their eyes when they see a lot of stats and numbers. So how do you ensure that, you know, yeah, like this, that, that the stats are humanized and it's not just, you know, a bunch of numbers and so and just, yeah. Yeah, I mean, a, a list of numbers wouldn't be well-written anyway. Yeah, of course. And the editor's test, so, you know, it's just about actually writing a story, and it is a story, and you are, you know, connecting everything and uh, building it all together. So, uh, I mean, it's really not much of an issue. Maybe you start with a couple stats in mind, but a lot of times it's more I start with an idea. Uh, I wrote something about Marcelo Zuna last week where – I knew that he really crushed the ball this year. So I started with his hard hit rate. And then sort of as I was writing, I realized what the other things I wanted to say were um, and grab the appropriate statistics. But, you know, it's not worthwhile if you're just going to throw numbers at people. And I don't, I don't think, you know, I certainly don't ever do that. No. and I uh, don't ever want to. And I don't think anyone would really sign off on that anyway no for sure so i mean you know your role is certainly multifaceted i mean writing social media you do some tv appearances as well podcasting for younger journalists you know getting into the industry how how important are just having way more skills because 20 30 years ago i mean you could just be a writer for the rest of your life and do very well but now you need a lot more skills than just the writing. So, I mean, how important is it just to have a greater skill set in your journalistic toolbox? 
Yeah, I mean, I think that's probably true of any job. You know, it's better to be as multifaceted as you can be, but I think the most important thing is just passion. You know, as long as you care about the material you're working with and really care to do a good job and continue to get better, that can manifest on literally any platform, right? That can be a podcast, that can be an article you're writing, that can be TV, that can be anything else. And, uh, you know, I think that you're definitely right that the opportunities and maybe even the expectations for people in this media world have definitely changed, uh, certainly over the last handful of years. And, you know, now most, I would say most writers are certainly doing a handful of podcasts, you know, uh, appearances, if not hosting them. And, you know, that certainly wasn't even a thing. Uh, previously, maybe they did a couple of radio hits, but probably not to the same extent. Uh, but the fact that there just is so much out there and there are so many, there's just so many media opportunities uh, and so many ways for people to create their own shows or platforms uh, that I think it just keeps multiplying. So before my final question, I'm going to ask you a few rapid fire questions about baseball. It's usually what I do before the end of all my uh, podcasts with different guests. So Sarah, favorite MLB ballpark? Um, probably, uh, oh, what is it now? Oracle Park. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> I was going to say Pat Bell and then I was going to say SBC Global. <laughs> I went through every name of it in my head. That was fun. Uh, but yeah, I mean, that's, I think it's the most beautiful bar ballpark in baseball. I did get a chance to go to PNC Park um, in the last few years. And I know that people often kind of draw a comparison on the water uh, and PNC was really beautiful, but uh, definitely Oracle Park has a special place in my heart. My, you know, I have some family members who are from the West Coast. So I have a lot of fun memories at that park and you just can't beat that view. Favorite ballpark food? Um, <laughs> I'm not sure I have a great answer to that. Um, not a big concessions person okay. necessarily. And uh, also vegetarian. So I feel like that probably takes me out of the running for a bunch of stuff. Uh, garlic fries are good. There. Okay. Um, and, oh, actually, I know what it is. Um, at guaranteed rate, the White Sox have a lote, um, the Mexican street corn, but not on the cob. It's just like in a little bowl. It's really good. Favorite spring training ballpark? <sighs> That's really difficult. I have only been to one in Florida, and it's now closed. Uh, it was the Disney one. Um, the Braves used to train there until through 2019. Uh, but I've been to every one in Arizona. And Scottsdale Stadium stands out to me because, again, I've been to the most games there. Um, and it's very small uh, and very intimate. But all of the new ones are really nice, like Camelback Ranch mm. and uh, Talking Stick. Uh, they really feel like, you know, more than just a spring training ballpark, which is really cool. Um, so yeah, I, I love spring training. I, I probably can't choose. And, and finally, I mean, a lot of my listeners are, you know, based in Canada, based in Toronto. Do you have any fond memories of being in Toronto with covering the Blue Jays from, you know, being as a kid or your, or your work in, in, in baseball? Uh, I actually have never been there. I'm sorry. Okay. No worries. Well, you, well, you got to come once the border opens. <laughs> Definitely, but the Blue Jays are a lot of fun to watch, that's for sure. And uh, I've really enjoyed, especially, you know, these last two years with the young players they have. Uh, they've been really exciting. Uh, and, you know, those guys are just so dynamic. So a lot of, lot of good stuff to come there, I feel like, in the next few years. Yeah, I mean, fingers crossed. I mean, hopefully, uh, you know, hopefully management can, you know, make, make, make some moves happen, which is not always the... <laughs> Not always the case with Toronto, but uh, but certainly the, the, the young players are, are really exciting. 
Sarah, last question for you, and it's usually you know how I end things off with a lot of my a lot of my guests is is just what what's one piece of advice you know you you, you tell your younger self about you know sports media or just getting into the industry and to succeed. Um, that I would tell myself. I mean, I think just to you know always keep pushing, which I think I've done a good job of so far. Um, but certainly it's hard to see. What is it? It's hard to see the forest through the different trees or whatever that saying is, you know, it's very easy to get caught up in very minute things and feel like, you know, at any point, a certain day didn't feel like you were working towards your goal um, or like you were necessarily going in that direction. Um, But it is broader than that. And, you know, just working in sports, getting whatever foot in the door you can is really important. And that will open so many more doors. Sarah Lanes is a reporter for MLB.com. Sarah, thank you so much for coming on the We Sports Chronicles podcast. Of course, thank you so much for having me.